Oh, it's so good to be together. It's so good to be home. And I'm so excited to see how God has brought us to this place as his family. You know, we're, we're moving around, aren't we? We, we feel uh, uh, a bit like the tabernacle of God. You know how the children of Israel followed the pillar of uh, fire or the pillar of smoke? You know, it's kind of like a, we move around. We're like a tent. Some people are tabernacles. Some people are, are temples. We're tabernacles, you know. We move when God tells us. I've been, I've been moving around a lot this, this past summer. We were in the States, Leanne and I, and uh, it was a, a joy to be literally from coast to coast because the question that kept coming up was, tell us about this church in Dubai. We hear these stories about Redeemer. People wanted to hear about you and God's faithfulness in our lives. And it was so good to tell them. It was such a joy to talk about the family of God together. We're going to actually look at Jonah today a prophet that moved around a lot. He had a, a lot of different kinds of transportation. He, he walked, he sailed, he submarined. You know, he did lots of, lots of ways to get around. So uh, it definitely relates to our situation. You know, in one sense, Jonah is that story we tell our little children, isn't it? And, and yet, and yet, <laughs> it's not a kid's story. It's, in fact, a very grown-up story understood correctly. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to going at, uh, at it over the next three weeks. So it's uh, today, chapter one, then next week, chapter two, and then the last week, chapters three and four. I appreciated Glenn, just kind of by the way, I appreciated Glenn talking about um, how we do sermons here at Redeemer and, and why we do them the way we do. I, I'd like to add to that a little. We, we walk through a passage of scripture every week. We just go pretty much verse by verse and look about what it has to say to our lives. And we do that for a whole host of reasons. I, I don't know about you that maybe that's not your tradition. It's certainly not mine. I did not come from a church that walked through the, the Bible expositionally. Um, we, my church basically, when I grew up, we would, the pastor would have a kind of a moral story and then they, he would have a couple points about that story that made for how to live life better, kind of. That was, that, was, that was the common way in my tradition. But we're doing something different. And first of all, because we believe that if we go to God's Word and explain it well, you are protected as, a, as the family of God. That as we look at the Scriptures and take it seriously in our application of life, we protect you the flock, from the world and traditions. But the second reason particular to our situation is that we want to go to a passage of Scripture because we believe the best way to become biblical culture is to follow the way of the Scriptures. So that we're not just whoever happens to be speaking is bringing their own culture. Although we have many people speaking from a vast variety of backgrounds and cultures speaking out of the Word, the desire is for us to always be biblical, always to develop biblical culture. So no matter who is speaking from the pulpit, the goal is to form the family of God as biblical culture. So we're not trying to form American culture. We're not trying to form African culture. We're not trying to form Asian culture, not Filipino culture, not, not Eskimo culture, you know, whatever culture. We're trying to form biblical culture that reflects God's heart. And you do. When we come together, 
from a wide variety of backgrounds, what we form is the family of God committed to Him, praising His name. So that when we're together under the Lordship of Christ, under the authority of His Word in, it, in our lives, we form something more powerful than just an individual culture. We're not opposed to culture, obviously. Culture is wonderful. But, but it's more powerful when we make the statement that God is more important than our backgrounds, our traditions, our personal sensibilities. Does that make sense? It's an exciting opportunity. Well, listen, let's go through through the Word of God in the book of Jonah. We're just going to read through chapter 1. I've got four points to the sermon. The first point in in verses 1 through 3 is prayer and the the storms of life. Uh, In uh, verse 4 and 6, fearing God. And 7 through 16, and the sacrifice of Jonah. And as I read through the text, this first chapter, I'll give you the headings for the same sermon outline. So the Word of God, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Second section, prayer and the storms of life. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. Section 3, the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, And they said to each other, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For you know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Finally, last section, the sacrifice of Jonah in verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, the first section is about responding to the word of God, verses 1 through 3. Notice here that all of this happens, all of the book of Jonah happens because the word of the Lord came to Jonah in verse 1. And that's what God is like. God comes to us and speaks and things happen. It's how he started. God spoke and it was so. God spoke the world into existence. He spoke light into existence. He spoke creatures into existence. God spoke and the nation of Israel formed. God speaks and forms His church. God's Word is powerful. And so when we see God speaking to Jonah, we recognize it is setting events into motion. God has spoken. He speaks to us today. I have no doubt about that. That God will come to you and speak to your heart. Now, let me confess. When you come to me, and uh, you, uh, you, I meet you in the foyer, I've got my coffee, I say, how's it going? God has really spoken to me. I believe it happens, but I'm a little nervous. I'm waiting for the second sentence, right? What is that second sentence? God has really spoken to me. Now, if the next sentence is about some clear biblical teaching that applies to your lives, I, I believe God has spoken to you. Fighting sin, being more generous with your money, desiring greater love for a spouse, a call to evangelism in the workplace. Those, those are clear, obvious, God-like voice in your, in your life and heart, right? But, when someone comes and tells me God has really spoken to them and given them the numbers for the next lottery winning, right? Or, I'm, I'm supposed to marry uh, this really good-looking guy who, uh, you know, he's a really nice guy. He doesn't go to church, but he's a really nice guy, right? I'm like, are you sure that you've heard the verse of the Lord, the words of the Lord in your life? Or, or is it just... Your voice masquerading as God's. This, of course, is something very familiar to me as, as one who's been involved in student ministry over the years. So we, we directed a program in uh, Guatemala, and um, it was a very dangerous situation. We worked in a malnourishment clinic. We worked with small children who were starving uh, malnourishment. And students would write us and say, I'd like to apply for their program and I believe that God is leading me to go with you. And we'd say, wonderful. And we'd send them applications and they'd sign up. And, you know, uh, and then we'd start sending them the, the details of the program. And how hard it was going to be. And how dangerous it was going to be. And how difficult they needed to prepare. How much preparation was involved. And we'd start getting letters back. God is leading me now not to go on the program. Right? It was amazing how capricious God is. And how much he changes his mind. No, God does not change his mind. We must be careful about ascribing our own, our own voice to God's voice. Well, in some sense, Jonah models that, doesn't he? Here, he, he, he is a prophet. He hears God's word. But Jonah thinks his religion, 
his religious background, his traditions religiously are more important than the Word of God. He simply cannot imagine that any good Hebrew boy would be called to go to the pagan nation of Nineveh and preach the Word. He can't imagine that. Understand, it's not that he does not understand. He, he gets the point. He doesn't need to go take online seminary courses back at the Jewish seminary he, he grew up in or study up on the original languages uh, because Jonah spoke the original languages, right? I mean, Jonah doesn't need a bigger Bible with better notes and more cross-references. Jonah knows his Bible. He understands that God has called the Jews to be a light to the nations. He knows, furthermore, that God hates evil. What, what God is simply asking him to do is merely to go to a foreign nation, A, B, tell them they're evil, C, tell them God has noticed. That's it. That's all. In fact, when Jonah gets there, his entire sermon for three days is eight words. Yet, 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. That's it. That's the only sermon he had to preach. Short prep. Nineveh was evil. It was an evil empire. They are the ones that invented crucifixion. They are the ones that will be used by God to judge Israel. To wipe them out. And Jonah says to himself, you want me to go preach to them? Jonah doesn't like it, and so he rebels. He wants to be away from the presence of the Lord. He goes to Joppa. He buys a ticket to take passage on a ship that goes the opposite direction to Nineveh, from Nineveh to Tarshish. Let me ask you a question. Are you committed to the teachings of Scripture even if it might offend your religious background, your religious upbringing. So many reject God's Word, the clear teachings of Scripture, because it offends religious upbringing. God's desire is not just for us to hear the Word correctly. Not just for us to know the Bible. Not just for us to memorize Scripture. God's desire is about hearing the Word. And once understood, living it out. Otherwise, it's just rebellion. You know, one of, one of the hardest calls in our life today parallels Jonah's. Is to go to people who are different. People who might not like you. People who might want to hurt you and tell them about God and His Word. It may be around the world. It may be down the street. Certainly in a place as diverse as Dubai, it's down the street. So don't, don't look down on, on Jonah. Jonah's call was hard. And at least Jonah had the honesty to say he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Many flee from the presence of the Lord and they don't know it. They're not, they're not honest enough with themselves to own up to it. The fact of the matter is that the Bible sees all of us as rebels. 
All of us have deceitful hearts. Paul says in the book of Romans, quoting Isaiah in the Old Testament, that all of us are like sheep gone astray. They're all sinners. None are righteous. So we, we line up at the ticket counter to book our passage to Tarshish in one way or another. We buy that ticket of rebellion. As Brian Park says, many come to Dubai for the same reasons Jonah fled to Joppa and then on to Tarshish. They're trying to be away from the presence of the Lord. It's easy to do here, isn't it? It's easy to come to Dubai and be away from, from God, or, or at least it seems like it. There are many, many common ways to rebel. We don't just need to run to a new place. We go the opposite direction in many different ways. God, God says don't be unequally yoked, and yet we pursue relationships with non-believers. God says be a cheerful giver to the poor, to the church, yet we load ourselves with so much debt we can barely pay off our credit cards month to month. The Bible says avoid vain ambition, yet we let our jobs or our children's education or whatever it is run our lives rather than our commitment to Jesus. Often, often, brothers and sisters, those of you who are a part of the family of God, we don't like how God has structured the church. We rebel against the clear teachings of Scripture that the church is the family of God to which we commit ourselves to. That we come together for mutual support, not just to fill our own lives, but rather to be a part of what God is doing in the world. We complain against God and His ways. Avoid, avoid at all costs muttering and complaining. You know how muttering and complaining, carping and carrying on, it's just one of those sins in the Christian community that seems to be tolerated, and yet it's one of the, one of the most affront, biggest affronts to God. And it so easily comes out of our mouth, doesn't it? I, I walked in to get mic'd up at the first service. And Chris, of course, being such a servant, is putting the mic on me and he tapes me up and everything. And I'm complaining that I don't have a lapel mic, you know? Why do we have to tape this thing on? It was like, wait a second, I'm getting ready to tell these people not to complain. <laughs> I'm complaining. I hate that. It just slips out. You know how it is? But listen, here's the deal with muttering and complaining. When you mutter and when you complain, what, what you're doing is exposing a dissatisfied heart. We're made to find joy and satisfaction in God. That's where, we, that's where we derive our joy in life, our satisfaction in life. But when we complain and carp and mutter and nag, it's an indication that we're dissatisfied with God. Because God has put us here. Our complaining wedges open our hearts to Satan himself. The mature in faith say along with Paul, I've learned to be satisfied in all circumstances. Well, there's a whole host of things that cause us to run to Joppa, to book fair, to Tarshish. But like, like Glenn talked about in Hebrews uh, 4 and 5 last week, don't rebel. Don't rebel. For, if for no other reason, is you can't, you can't flee the presence of God. It's a dead end. Try as you like, you can't really get away from the Lord. Jonah can't, and we can't. Let's look at verses 4 and 6. 
the second point, prayers and the storms of life. Well, well God, God gets Jonah's attention. He sends a storm in verse 4. The storm is from the hand of God. And how bad is it? Well, it's, it's bad. Things are going to break up if something doesn't change. It's bad enough to throw away all their stuff. You know, if sailors are throwing their cargo overboard, it's bad. It is so desperate. It's desperate enough to pray. They start calling out to their gods. Though apparently not Jonah. He's asleep. Last week I was in Fujairah with students studying through the book of Mark. And uh, it's, a, it's a joy to go through Mark with students and have a whole week just to focus on the scriptures. Um, and we get to that part in Mark where Jesus is taking the disciples on the other side of the temple after the triumphal entry and is looking back from the Mount of Olives onto the temple. And the, the, you, you've probably read the passage, but the disciples ask questions or, or they make a statement actually about how great the temple is. And Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone on top of the other which, of course, happened in 70 AD. It was a, a complete prediction come true. Uh, and, and they start asking, when is this going to happen? When is Jesus going to return? Well, he, he walks through a big chunk of Scripture there. You know, it's the whole, and we go through it. And, but the point of the passage is more not about when Jesus is going to come back, but stay awake, be ready, be alert, stay awake. It's repeated over and over again. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. There was a student sitting there at the table, and he's looking at me. I thought he was involved. And I said, to, I, I named him. I won't say his name. Some of you know him. I said, brother, uh, uh, what do you think it means for Jesus to call us to stay awake? And he, he, he kind of, oh, oh I, I'm sorry, Mac. I, I dozed off there. Could you repeat the question? I was like, ah! I feel like the captain on the ship, you know. <laughs> wake up, sleeper. Wake up. Wake up and pray. Listen, I, I know for many of you, many of you, you have storms in your life. The storm has come to you. And if it, if it hasn't, it will. Storms come our way. If sudden, something doesn't change in your marriage, you, you think it, it's going to break up. If, if, if something doesn't change in your finances, you don't, you don't know what you're going to do. How do you handle the visa situation? Or what about my kids? Hey, you youth. What about your parents, right? <laughs> Desperate situations. And if something doesn't change, I'm going to break up like a ship on the high seas. And so what do we do? We do like they did. We turn to God. We turn to the sovereign God in prayer. And that's right, it's good. Though actually, I just comment, it's better to be praying all along. You know? You don't want to just, you don't want to just go to God when you're in trouble, right? <laughs> you want to know Him when you go to Him. Let me, let me make some observations about, about prayer that will help you not pray pagan prayers. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of praying going on here. But not all prayers are the right prayers. And if we're not clear about that, you can end up praying to pagan gods. In particular, I think of three cliches, three indications of pagan prayers. And they sound good 
on the surface. And I confess I've actually used these in the past. Three cliches. There's power in prayer. Well, I know what people mean when they say that. Of course, there's power in prayer, but not if you pray to the wrong thing. If you pray to a tree, there's no power in your prayer. It's powerless. What makes prayer powerful is who you pray to. It's the object of your prayers that's important. It's the direction of your prayer. Right? So actually, let me say it clear. No, there's no power in prayer. Lots of people pray. The power comes from the true God. And if you don't know the true God, you're not tapping into power. If you don't know His ways, His will. Second cliche. God hears prayer. I know what people mean, right? God hears all prayers. He's the sovereign God. He responds as He desires. But there are many prayers that are not heard. Some people pray often. Some people pray multiple times a day. Jesus warns us not to think that praying with repetition will get God's attention. No, he says, don't be like the pagans. Probably thinking back to the pagans who prayed with Jonah. Don't be like the pagans who think through their many words they can access God, right? No. What God listens for is those who are in line with the will of God in faith. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not us who prays, but as if we pray through the righteousness of Christ standing before the very throne of God, clothed in the robes of righteousness in Christ. We don't, we don't pray in Jesus' name to close a prayer. We pray to summon the image of where we pray from and how God hears. So what God hears is the heart of faith. God hears, not prayer, but the prayer. God hears the prayer. Those that pray in faith. Third cliche. Prayer changes things. Well, again, close, but not really. Prayer doesn't change anything. If you think just by praying you're going to change something, you're, you're bound for disappointment. Especially if you pray for the wrong things. Understand, it's not prayer that changes things. It's not a magic formula. It's not a good luck charm. It's God who changes things. God is the one that we should think about when we pray. Too many, too many teachings on prayer are unfortunate calls to some sort of works righteousness or a magic charm that puts the focus on me and my prayers and not on God. Don't be pagan about your prayers. It would, it would have been, been easy for these sailors to think, wow, it's a good thing we prayed. It stopped the storm, right? But actually, the more they pray, the worse the storm gets. It's not, about, it's not about our prayers. It's about God and how He works. And it's true with us today as well. So get a right understanding of prayer. Guard yourself from pagan prayers. Pray to the God of creation who has made heaven and earth. Let's look at verses 7 through 15. Fearing God. Notice here they call this storm evil in verse 7. And they want to know why. And 
And in one sense, they're asking the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, many, many of you know when a bad thing happens in your life, you want to know why, right? I mean, it's a natural, it's a natural question that comes to our minds. Why did this happen? What did I do to deserve this? Well, I think we should be reminded of R.C. Sproul's quote referring to when bad things happen to good people that it only happened once and he volunteered. There's only been one time that a bad thing has happened to a good person because Jesus was the only person who's ever been totally good. The rest of us, like the thief on the cross says, is deserved. We deserve that. The fact is, none of us are good. God is in charge of all things. Of all things. He is the sovereign Lord. Nothing comes to us except from the hand of God. Even bad storms. Now, be careful. Be careful here in verse 7. You need to understand whether or not this storm is really evil after all. They say it's evil. The pagans, the sailors say it's evil. But remember, this storm is from the hand of God. It's for the good of the people of Nineveh. It's to stop Jonah's sin and rebellion. But because no one at the time on that boat had God's perspective, they they couldn't see it that way. The same is true for God's storms in our life today. Many are tempted to ascribe some event in their life as evil when actually it's from the hand of God. It may have sprung from evil. Evil men might have originated it just as those who crucified Christ were motivated out of evil intent. It may come from a fallen world. But God redeems. He redeems all things so that ultimately nothing touches you except from the hand of God. Now when the sailors discover in verse 8 by casting of Lot, that their particular problem is Jonah, they have these series of rapid-fire questions for him. And his answers in verse 9 make them really afraid in verse 10. You see that? Jonah worships God with a capital G. The God who made heaven and earth. Not, not the small little regional gods they worship. So the sailors want to know in verse 11, what must be done? It's a good question. And he tells them in verse 12, pick me up, toss me in. That's the solution. Which is not the answer they wanted to hear. So they wrote all the harder to get back in verse 13. It still doesn't help. So after a brief prayer before the fish's meal, they toss Jonah overboard. Now, I'm, I'm puzzled why Jonah doesn't just tell him to head back to Nineveh, right? There's one clear solution here besides being eaten by a fish. And it's to repent, right? You can just go the other way. Hey, I got this idea. Why don't we turn the ship around and we'll start heading that way? It'll stop the storm. We don't know this for sure. But I suspect that Jonah's heart is so rebellious that his will is so stubborn, that he is so set that he would rather die 
than do right. And I wonder about us and our own stubborn hearts. How we're so unwilling to turn from a path of death, this trip to Tarshish. So many of us are so prideful, so sure that we're right, that we're on the path to death, though we hear about the right way. It's a death wish. I'm also not sure why the sailors don't take him up on the solution right away. The storm seems awful. It seems like they could have just said okay and picked him up and tossed him over. But they don't do that. They row all the harder. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's that they don't want to be guilty of innocent blood if it doesn't work. (laughs) They're actually thinking that they will meet God soon. That's what's on their mind. But notice their progression of prayer. We can see this. Where they had first prayed to their gods, back in verse 5, they then, in verse 14, begin to pray to the Lord. That's Jonah's God. And in verse 16, in the end, after the storm is over, they fear the Lord God exceedingly, reverently. They worship Him. They have seen His character. They have seen who He is. Have you seen God's character made manifest in your life at some point? Have you ever seen God made known in your life? Do you fear Him? The fear of the Lord, of course, is not a phrase in vogue in common culture there. But it's a biblical concept. When you see the true nature of the character of God, do you fear Him? Do you fear the one who sends the storms to your life? Or are you sleeping in the belly of the boat, unaware of God's hand, unaware of His character? Listen, There are two ways to understand the fear of God. One is when we are in His will to reverently respect Him. The other is when we are out of His will to know the terror, to know the stark, gripping fear of opposing the Lord of the universe. So a number of years ago, uh, when when I uh, was a part of the software company in Internet City, I was offered a large bribe, and not just for for me, but for the whole company. My response was, uh, well, first it was like, wow, that's a lot of money for true confessions. And the second thought was, no, I fear God. I want to go to heaven, you know. Uh, And so I told the man, I said, "Uh, no, actually, we we don't do that. Uh, We fear God. And he understood. Oh, okay. Um, I understand. The reason I said that is for two reasons. One is, I trust in reverent respect that God is going to provide for me in my need. And that the money that He has for me is not needed because I know God. I I fear Him in my life as I walk with Him. I also fear God knowing that if I had taken that money, it would have been money opposed by God. I would have been apart from His will. And I would have had to fear him literally in terror, wondering, oh, 
Oh, Lord God, what have I done? Right? We understand that there are two natures to the fear of God. Do you fear God? Do you fear Him in your daily walk? Do you fear Him, those of you who are apart from Him, who are opposing His will? Well, you should. You should fear Him. All should fear the Lord. You would be wise if you cultivated the fear of God in your life, for He is fearful. And one day you will see that side of Him. And on that day, it would be good for you to hear Him say, I know you. I know you, Padmini. I know you. I know you, Shump. I know you. I know you, Buff. I know you, Prossy. I know you, Mark. I know you. To avoid the wrath, the terror of God. For the only way out from under the wrath of God, the only way out from under that fear of God of stark terror is for Him to know us. To be in relationship with Him. Maybe the most common word that we would use in our circles today is not the fear of the Lord. We would probably say the Lordship of Christ. We would use that word. It's a, it's a parallel. It has a parallel meaning. That is, you are submitted to Jesus Christ in every area of your life. You don't say, come in Jesus, stay out Lord. Right? You don't dichotomize. You don't split God in your life. So, when we gather here, you're the same person as when you are at home. The same person as when you are at work. And if, if you're not, you see, you, you, you're not really understanding the fear of the Lord. You're not submitted to the Lordship of Christ in your life. And repent. <laughs> repent. It's easy. Those who fear God are submitted to the Lordship of Christ in all of life. Last point. The sacrifice of Jonah in verses 15 through 17. Well, we mentioned we don't know why Jonah doesn't tell them to change directions to Nineveh, but I know why God prevented it. It's because he's setting up his image here. Jonah is more than just a peculiar prophet with a rebellious streak and a death wish. He's an image. So, so and we, we've got to get this in our, our mind, too, because Jonah is the same things at once throughout the text. He's both a person that God deals with personally, and he is also a powerful image of what is to come. An image and a person. So God is dealing sometimes with the person of Jonah, and sometimes he's creating this image uh, that, it, that projects who he is for the future. You, many, of you, many of you know my personal concern that we as a congregation see all of Scripture in pointing to Christ and pointing to the gospel, right? So as we've looked at Old Testament characters over the, over the, uh, the scope of the last year and a half, uh, we've walked through the characters that point to God. And it's kind of a correction to what much of modern culture does with Old Testament characters. So you, you, you know what they do? They take Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith, right? We need to be like Abraham, the man of faith. Joseph, the pure one, the one who... The one who uh, abstained from sexual immorality in his life, right? Um, Daniel, the prophet who prayed despite the persecution of others. And all all of those things, of course, are true. There's nothing untrue about any of that. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, "You you should think on these great 
clouds of witnesses who have been faithful. But there's a danger there, right? Because you and I are not really Abraham, not really Joseph, not really Daniel. If, if, we're, anyone, if we're anyone in the stories of the story of Abraham and Isaac and his sacrifice, we're Isaac. We're on the altar. We're, we're bound in sin. The wrath of God hangs over us like a knife in judgment. And our only hope is for a substitute sacrifice, that, that lamb, the lamb of God caught in the thicket, right? We're not, we're not called to be Joseph sexually pure, although, of course, it's a wonderful thing. No, we're, we're the brothers who've thrown the perfect one into the pit for dead. We show up before His throne and beg for mercy. We beg for salvation. Right? Unbeknownst to us. He is hidden from us. It's their brother. They can't see Him. The one who sits on the throne and offers salvation. Right? You see that in Joseph's life. Daniel, I'm glad he prayed under the face of persecution. But the, but the person in the story that's us is not Daniel. It's Darius the king who threw him into the pit, the pit of lions, where he was miraculously preserved, risen from the pit. The stone was rolled aside. Darius repents of his sin. He recognizes that Daniel's God is the true God and proclaims it among all the nations, right? So, so there's no... There's no question for us when we come to Luke 24 and Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and He tells them that all the law and all the prophets point to who? Jesus. That's what He says. And so when we look at Jonah, especially for those of you who've been a part of Redeemer now, you can, you can do this yourself, Right? You you can see it. It's right there. Jonah serves the God of heaven as his prophet. He's called to pronounce truth to all the nations. He's sacrificed by religious people. They toss him to the grave, to his grave, where he spends three days and three nights in the belly of death. This sacrifice produces peace with God. It averts the wrath of God. Now who did that? Jesus, right? This is an image of Christ. It should stick in our minds. Jesus himself said that the great sign given to the generation that asks for a sign wickedly in Matthew 12:40 is Jonah himself. For just as Jonah, Jesus says, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said that before he died. And and here's the point. That we must come to Jonah and understand it points us to the gospel. It points us to the heart of the message of God. So often we, we think that there's so many other things in the Bible besides the gospel, and yet the gospel is the central message from which we go in and come out of all our lives. So if we're, we're anyone in this story, we're the pagans, right? We're wayward. We don't, we don't know what's going on. We, we worship other gods. 
But listen to the parallel of the story of the gospel with the story of Jonah. When we see the creator God, when we see his character, the one who's created heaven and earth, as Jonah says, when we see him, that God, make the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we bend our knee to his lordship. We fear him in all areas of our life. We, under, we understand that his wrath is placed not on us, but on his very son. We see his suffering, his death, his burial in the grave for three days and three nights as prophesied by Jonah and his great victorious resurrection as his major statement to the world. The central point, the Christian believes that the central point of all Christianity is this story such that we turn from our rebellion. When we see it, when we, we see that God has set all of this up from time in eternity past to this moment when you sit in this seat, God has arranged it all. So this run to Tarshish, this ticket purchase at Joppa, we put aside, we repent of, we turn from. This Tarshish is, a, is an image of death. We come to Christ in faith, simple faith, not working our way through the law. We, we give our lives to God, knowing that the sacrifice we make, the simple, small, little sacrifice we make of giving our lives to Him is just a, a teeny thing to do in response to what He's done for us. And we remember, it's not just a rebellious prophet that's been sacrificed, no, it's the holy, sinless Son of God. So that we might have peace with God. That you might know Him. No longer be at war with Him and know His peace. To enter into His peace. That's the gospel. I said I had four points, but I actually have five. I'd like to slip one in. There's this last verse, verse 17, about God and, and this great fish. The appointment of God. It's very interesting that it says, and God provided or appointed a great fish. Now, uh, it, it's, it's common to think of this as a whale. Don't you most, mostly think of it as a whale? I do. Maybe it's just my upbringing. I think it was a whale. Some scientists got together in the late... Uh, 1800, early 1900s, and they said, whales don't eat people, and um, furthermore, they're not in the Mediterranean. And so it couldn't have happened. And I, I think Christians kind of crumbled at that point, and, and uh, they said, okay, it's not a whale, it's a great fish. Which is probably, I mean, I don't know. But frankly, I don't think it's that hard to imagine a sperm whale or a blue whale eating a fish and swallowing enough air to keep them alive for three days. (laughs) Actually, scientifically, it's true. I'm a biologist. There, take it from a scientist. But that's not not the hard thing to understand, is it? (laughs) Fish eat people all the time. There's no big deal about a fish eating a person. What's difficult to imagine about this passage is that the whale was there ready to eat him, right? How did God do that? Right? You know, okay, uh, left at Gibraltar, into the Mediterranean, from the Arctic, uh, straight ahead, uh, uh, you know, under the boat, eat Jonah, right? At the exact right moment. How did that whale get there? 
See, that's the thing that's mind-boggling. Is it? He created the storm at the exact right moment. It's got the, the fish, the fish has been provided for him at the exact right moment. Jonah didn't get eaten by accident. And let me, let me tell you, you're not here by accident either. Think of the small hinges that have turned to bring you to the seat that you're in today. Think of them. How many, how many people did you meet or things that you heard or happened to come across on a web page or the thing that, the thing that kind of uh, connected you with a ride or, you know, whatever it is. God is, God is bringing things together because He's the sovereign Lord. And the bigger question the bigger question for you is not so much how did he do it, but, but why? Why did he do it? Have you heard God's word to, today? Maybe he wants to teach you how to hear and respond to his word. Maybe, it, maybe it's so that you can pray with better understanding, that you're not praying to pagan gods. Maybe though you have long called yourself a Christian, Suddenly, you understand you are not really submitted to the fear of the Lord, to Lord, the Lordship of Christ in your life. And you, you need to do it this morning, now. Some, some of you are here sitting, thinking about faith. You've never actually understood that the sacrifice of God was for you. That Christ's work on the cross was not just a, a distant, far-off thing that happened, but rather a personal event for your life, for all those who put their complete faith and trust in Him. If you desire to do that today for the first time, that's a beautiful thing that God has appointed, God has provided for you in this place now. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. What, whatever it is, I'm sure God is at work in the circumstances that brought you to this place such that you will know Him and know Him better. We're going to talk more about that in chapter 2 of Jonah next week. Let's pray in closing together. Lord God, we see the power of your word and how you speak and move. You move in our hearts, you move our feet, and we're grateful. Father God, we desire to be people of prayer that is effective prayer. We pray, Father, that we not trust in prayer alone, but rather make sure that the object of our prayer, the power of our prayer, the nature of our prayer is in you. It's about you. And that changes happen because of who you are. Father God, I do pray for us as a congregation, especially that we would be submitted to the Lordship of Christ in every area of our lives. Help us avoid the dichotomized life of God. And Lord, for those who are thinking through issues of faith, thinking about what it means to commit their lives to you for the first time in faith. I pray, I pray for them, Father, and pray that you would give them the grace and mercy to understand and that your love would touch their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.